0: To say that every time, so I'm just following orders. <laughs> um, give me one second here. Set up. So, uh, today we're going to be returning to our um, study in 1 Peter 4, and uh, it's been a, a joy to meditate um, through this passage as uh, we've approached this morning. it um, have uh, been a I just want to take a minute and just uh, thank thank the worship team. Thank you for your preparation. Thank you for um, the careful choice of song. It just ministers to my heart every time. It's so consistent with the passages that we we study. And uh, it really has uh, ministered to my heart this morning. Um, So we'll be reading um, uh, verses 12 through 19. Um, And as you turn there, I'd like to pray over our time together. Heavenly Father... Uh, we come to you this morning with your holy word in our hands and seeking for your direction in our lives. You know that we lose our weight so often, and we thank you for your faithfulness to minister to us through your word and through your very presence in our lives. We ask this morning that you would have your Holy Spirit move in and through us as we meditate on your scripture. Let it be a strength and courage to overcome fear and dismay May our presence before you be one of humility and of nobility as we cast our vision to your Son, who is the prototype of what the believer can look forward to. He is our kinsman-redeemer and our soon-and-coming king. Through him and through your perfect plan, we have received the gift of faith, and we have received eternal life. We ask you for a unified mind and heart this morning that's prepared for the work of your refining word. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So let's turn to first I'm gonna turn them myself here. All right, let's begin. In verse twelve. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal um, I apologize. For all those who can stand, would you please stand with me and for the reading of God's word this morning? Thank you. All right, let's begin. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God... Rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You may be seated. So before we jump into our outline today, um, I wanted to talk to you about the section and, and how it opens up. Um, There's an address here to whom this scripture is written. This is a family mail letter. The word that is used here to describe the recipients of this letter is, what's that first word? Beloved. Beloved. This is a term that far surpasses any love or affection that a natural man has capacity for. This is a, a divine love stemming from the root word agape this is the love that god the father has for his only begotten son jesus christ a love that existed before the foundations of the world a love that extends beyond time space or material this is the love that first john 4:16 through 19 explains i'd like you to turn there keep your finger in first john or first peter but turn to first john 4 verse 16. I'd like to read this incredible blessing together. 1 John 4, 16 through 19, and we'll return to 1 Peter after. And we'll see here that this love is evidence that we have been engrafted into the family of God, and it explains the permanency of that love. Let's read that together. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is We love because he first loved us. So as on your way back to 1 Peter 4, I'll, I'll mention the Holy Spirit through Peter wants the believer to know that they are loved. There's a, there are hard things to hear in this text. And the Holy Spirit through Peter wants our hearts to be comforted up front with the knowledge that God loves us and to the degree that he loves us you and i are his favored children and he will withhold no good thing from you and he's going to reveal some hard truths that call the believer to operate far outside of what their flesh would would or could ever but this is the will of god that as he is so also are we in this world we're not of this world we are aliens and strangers foreigners the minority Last week, we, we learned in verse 10 to behave in a way that is unique. We're to use the unique gifts that God has endowed to the newborn spiritual babes that are Christians. We are to speak to one another, as verse 11 says, as one who is speaking the actual words of God. We are to serve one another as one who is serving the, the, uh, by the strength which God supplies. We are to do this as a fervent love for one another overlooking each other's offenses and coming alongside each other without complaining. We're to be hospitable, welcoming fellow believers into our lives. As Jeremy explained, a combination of love and for the, the brotherly love and the, the strangers, welcoming strangers into our lives on account of Christ. As we do this, the world will, will not understand what they will be, but they will be aware of it. They will be aware of something. As Jesus said in John 13, 35, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. So, hey, Chris, would you throw me my water? Thank you. Thank you. The partnership begins. The early church received this message and, and put this into practice. As we uh, le- learned in our study on Romans 1, for those of us who came on, to the Sunday night under the Oaks last, thank you, Jeremy, for that presentation, um, the early church understood that they had an obligation to the gospel. Uh, they had an obligation and to live the gospel. They had, a, they had an eagerness to share the gospel, and they were unashamed of the gospel, The world noticed this attitude of love in the early church and it garnered the attention of the emperor Nero who hated what God was doing among his people. As the believers worked out their faith, they became a threat to the political, social, and religious order that Rome was steeped in. There was no place in Nero's multi-tiered political structure for the equality and brotherhood shared among believers. This tenderness and sacrificial giving decimated the clout between the established social order and weakened Nero's supremacy. The worship of only one God challenged the traditions of the Roman religions that promoted polytheism and was woven throughout the culture and weakened the stability of the state. After what is known as the Great Fire of Rome, which raged for six days before getting under control and then reignited for another three days, engulfing 10 of the 14 districts, which amounted to two-thirds of Rome, Nero began a persecution of the Christians as a scapegoat to draw attention away from his failures and to accomplish his evil will against them. He became a madman and performed heinous acts against the Christians. He would try and force Christians to renounce their faith. And if they didn't, he would personally devise their public executions. He would pit Christians against wild dogs and let them tear them to pieces. He would crucify them. Uh, among other gr- gruesome ex- executions, he would he would cover, cover believers in tar and pitch and tie them to stakes and light them on fire to to, get, to illuminate the parties that he would throw in his gardens. This was a reality that we have yet to experience in America on a grand scale, but the spirit of persecution is on the prowl. I was just speaking with the, our, our new Ni- Ni- Nigerian family who's here, and he, uh, Cornelius was telling me all about the, the horrors that are going on over there. Persecution is, a, is, is alive and well, or horribly Alive and active. It makes me cringe to even consider any one of my brothers or sisters experiencing that type of gross injustice. It certainly makes the precious calling that Peter says up front, beloved, so helpful as he, it lifts the believer's eyes, making the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I've I've entitled today's sermon, Suffer with Joy, giving reference to verse 13 as the key verse in this passage. And you'll notice that the the sermon points are in the cross stick of suffer. Not to belabor the point, but this is not one of those feel-good messages, but a rather sober one. That beloved is so precious. That that is the feel-good portion of this, and hang on to it because that's why it's there. Understanding that the context of this passage and what the early believers were facing allows us to sanctify our sights and consider persecution. While God's grace is sufficient for thee in the hurts, the worries, the trials of this life, uh, whether it be consequences of personal sin or the effects of loved one's uh, wrongdoing against us or sickness or circumstantial challenges like lost job or a lost pet, even the lost loved one, This passage is dealing with persecution. Peter goes on to say in verse 12: Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. Indeed, believer, having a sanctified sight that you were declared holy, set apart when you became born again, you were made a stranger to this world. You became an enemy of Satan. While Christ is king of kings and lord of lords, for this short while, Ephesians 2.2 says that this world is under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. He was your enemy before you were saved. Now that you are saved, you are his enemy. And he has you as his target of his hatred to God. Let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. If you're quick, you can get there, but I'm going to go for it. And you were dead in the, tre- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's because of this enemy that continues to manipulate the unredeemed of mankind that we should not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Satan will use all of his faculties and resources to discourage you from using your spiritual gifts of love for the brethren. He will do anything and everything to blur your sanctified sight. Ephesians 6 tells us that we are in a cosmic war. A battle not against flesh and blood, but against authority, spiritual forces. And we need the full armor of God to defend against the flaming arrows of Satan. What are those flaming arrows? Well, they're extinguished only by the shield of faith. These arrows are doubts. Satan has a desire to cause you to lose sight of your faith and rely on your former ways. It's no wonder that Nero's ultimatum was to have Christians renounce their faith. No, we we don't bow to our former master. Believer, you are to steady your submission. Steady your submission to our Lord and Savior and walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Brother and sister, you and I have not experienced anything of the sort in comparison to what the early church experienced. Not yet, but the enemy is at work. The temperature in America is building, and godly views are under attack. Complacency is giving way to inventions of evil. As much as we should be engaged in our culture to be, um, to be obligated, eager, and unashamed of the gospel, we also need to be ready for persecution. Verse 12 explains to us that we are being acted upon by these enemy forces under the permission of God For the express purpose of refinement. Much like a lump of of, uh, raw gold is exhumed from the ground. And then heated in a crucible to temperatures that make it sizzle and squeal, blister and boil, flash and flame. It is done so to remove from it impurities. It's only by the refiner's desire to determine when that process is complete. When it begins, when it stops. It's when His objectives are met. And God is our refiner, and his desire is to build upon his free gift of faith to us. This magnificent process, according to Ephesians 3.10, is on display. I'll read it. So that the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Knowing these things, sanctify your sights and steady your submission. Our next verse is our our, uh, key verse, which is 13. And it reads, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. Believer, it's imperative that you understand your undertaking. To become a child of God doesn't mean that you grab a bag of spiritual potato chips and plop down on the family couch. As a born-again believer... You have been drafted in a war. Our commander-in-chief has set the model, and we are to follow in his footsteps. Christ's entire ministry was marked with suffering. Never forget that according to Philippians 2, 6 through 8, again, if you can get there quick, you can get there, but I'll read it right off the bat. He existed in the form of God. He, that's God, Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus condescended to a virgin birth, to be hunted by a government that he established, to be blasphemed by a religious institution that he established, to be rejected by a people that he established, to be beaten, mocked, humiliated, and nailed to a tree, and even a tree that he established. Christ's ministry was intentionally marked with suffering, in and throughout, and there was no greater display of his suffering than his death on the cross. It's the cross that your call comes from. And it's the cross that draws to, uh, at, that you are drawn to. The whole story of humanity hinges on the cross. It's for this reason that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Christ's very calling in Matthew 16.24 and 25 says, If anyone Wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is how you are to understand your undertaking to share in the ministry of Jesus. If your ministry is marked with suffering, there lies the question to what degree do you share? The sufferings of Christ. Can you say in your heart that you have embraced the sacrificial love for the brethren in this building and beyond? Can you say that you are operating with kindness and mercy, overlooking each other's offenses for Christ's sake? Can you confess to being hospitable and engaging believers you don't know in the Spirit of Christ? Are you sacrificially employing with fervency the spiritual gifting that he has given you? If not, you're missing your call. And dear believer, I have to say, repent. And let's get to work. If you are, then Peter says, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. Brothers and sisters, Uh, This is called unction. Uphold your unction. Please keep your thumb in 1 Peter and join me in 2 Timothy. We're going to jump to chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 through 15. The attitude of a believer is nothing like what the world has to offer. And as you consider your attitude and forthcoming behavior to the church body, Pray with all earnest to allow God to work in and through you. You should know when it is his work versus your work, when it's done by the Spirit and not the flesh. Let's read, starting in verse twelve of Second Timothy chapter three. Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus, what does that say? Will be persecuted. But evil people and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is Christ Jesus. Believer, uphold your unction. And dive deeper into carrying your cross. Paul says here that the result of your undertaking is fueled by studying scripture. Practicing what it, is to, what it says to do. And believing that Christ Jesus will give you sanctifying wisdom that will lead you. And cause others to respond in salvation. He also says that evidence of true godly attitude and behavior... Is persecution. Let's, let's turn back to first Peter four, verse thirteen. This unction to live in such a godly way that it draws persecution is paired with a great reward. A reward in the here and the now of joy and 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 there and then in eternity as an overjoy. To endure this persecution in this darkened world is evidence that Christ is glorifying himself in and through your life. As Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. There are three uh, points in a believer's life. There's a period before Christ entered your life when it was impossible to please God. There was a period there is a period when Christ enters your life when you become saved where it is possible to please God as opposed to when it was impossible to be ple- to please God and there will be a time a period when Christ returns when it will be impossible not to please God Because sin will be done with. It will be no more. There will be no tears. There will be no sorrow. We will live in perfect union with God, completely free of any sin or its consequence. We're currently living in the second period. And any time we can resemble the third period, it will cause great joy in the believer. Revel in that. Peter shares with us at the end of verse 13 that our suffering here will translate into an overjoy in eternity. This should motivate the believer to have the same attitude as Christ, according to Hebrews 2.2, 2, which says, for the joy set before him, that's Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. This is God, very God. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He is our model. Again, we are living in the second period of a believer's life with with Christ in us. And there is a transcendence about this moment as well. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6 says this about us. He, that's Jesus, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only does our submission to God, who uses persecution to refine us, have an impact on us here and now, but something's happening in heaven simultaneously, simultaneously, Peter enlightens the believer in verse 14 about this activity. Let's read that. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Sometimes we use the word if as a conditional word. But here, Peter is using the word if in the context of since. Remember the very people who are receiving this message from Peter. It's the persecuted church under Nero. Nero. The comparison that is being drawn is not if the believers are being insulted at all, but that that they are being insulted by man on earth and conversely being spoken highly about in heaven by God. Let me say that uh, last part again. They are being insulted by man on earth, but being conversely highly regarded and spoken about in heaven by God. That's what the word blessed means here. Spoken of highly. This is what your father declares about you in the heavens. The believers that were receiving this message in real time were being accused, blamed, held guilty for the great fire of Rome, and they were innocent in the flesh. That would be frustrating. They were not only being used as a scapegoat for the failures of Nero... But they were being persecuted on account of Christ. But as Nero afflicted the believers, it was Christ who was being persecuted. God knows that. Through Peter, the Holy Spirit is telling God's beloved to be encouraged. For greater is it to have the approval of God than of man. And you might find yourself in a similar situation. May may Peter's words cause you to forsake your frustrations and double down on the name of Christ. You, believer, are regarded by God as his favored child and spoken of very highly as you pursue godly living. Peter then brings our minds back from God's activity in the heavenly realms to the here and now. He reveals the activity of the three persons of the Godhead who are in participation with the believer As it reads, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. How wonderful, how glorious that we who once were enemies of God are now participants in the triune effort of God as he puts on display his provision of faith through endurance of persecution. As his glory rests on the believer they can expect to be refreshed. As they seek God, the believer finds their freedom. They can celebrate with Paul, who wrote in 2 Corinthians 2, 16-18. I'll read that. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but, but though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So look to God, believer, in moments of persecution as you prepare your heart for that, for when it comes. Forsake your frustration and freshen your freedom with this knowledge receive the promise that Isaiah 40, 29 through 31 says, he gives strength to the weary and to the one who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. How encouraging to the heart Are these words? What promise to the soul? And Peter goes on to address even the mind. In verse fifteen and sixteen, let's look. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if everyone suffers as if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Here, Peter cautions the believer against provoking suffering. We do not operate as the world operates. Having been accused by Nero of the destruction of Rome, which would be paired with all kinds of evil, the believer is not to live by the standard of double jeopardy, where if you're accused and sentenced for something that you were innocent of, you can then lawfully do it. The believer is to recognize the reality that it is God and his will for the believer to suffer. It is not for, the, for suffering's sake. Like somehow God takes pleasure in seeing his children in pain. No. It is that God desires for his children to emulate him. As he acts contrary to what the world's standards are. You are to fear the father in your persecution. How humid would it be to hate those who persecute you. To want them to die as, de- as you are dying, to steal their comforts as, you're being ripped, as yours are being whipped, ripped away, uh, to invent evils in your mind as they publish new falsehoods against you, or to return the words of deceit and slander for what is being broadcast publicly about you. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, five twenty one through 22, that sin originates in the heart. It's, if you fear your father in your persecution by being right-minded and fix your focus on, the, on glorifying him, you will not be ashamed. Though the goal of persecution is to dishonor the believer, a humble submission to God, giving him praise for his sovereignty, will produce glory to him as you carry his son's name, the name Christian. Once used as a mocking term, meaning little anointed one, the name Christian is to be exalted in the believer's life and be the most endearing term that they could ever be called. I know this guy that every time I see him, he's wearing a a Jackie Robinson's jersey. He's not Jackie Robinson, um, but but he's proud to identify with Jackie Robinson. When he puts that jersey on, he turns all self-promotion aside and pro- promotes Dodgers number 42. This is, what it, this is likened to what it means to be found in Christ. John the baptizer understood this uh, in, his, in his willful submission to Christ as Lord and Savior when he said in Matthew 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. If that is so, then our desire needs to line up with His, we must recount what we know of Jesus by studying Scripture, recalling the effects of it on our lives, and we must acknowledge His purpose in coming and sharing. And we need to share in that purpose. First John three eight says, "The Son of God appeared for the, this purpose." Have you ever wondered? It's for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil, and then also in Luke nineteen ten. He says, for the son has come to seek and save the lost. And then also in John three seventeen says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. In recalling his mission, believer, you can evaluate your emancipation. Recount what Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is what Peter guides the believer's mind to next in verse 17 and 18. Let's read that. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those Who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless? Believer, it's so imperative that as you evaluate your emancipation, you recognize that judgment has come to your door. The verdict was guilty, and the wages of your sin is death and eternal punishment. The sentence for your sin and offenses was decreed and the penalty for your egregious crimes and my egregious crimes against the holy, angry, and righteous God was administered. But you and I didn't receive the betrayal. We didn't receive the whip. We didn't receive the beating. We didn't receive the piercing. We didn't receive the humiliation. We didn't receive the agony. We didn't receive the crushing in that dark three hours. You didn't. You and I didn't receive the forsaking of the Father. No, Jesus took that for you and for me. The perfect, righteous, pure, holy, eternal Son of God, the one through whom all things came into being, and apart from Him, not, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. The way, the truth, the life. The light of mankind, the vine, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, the one who upholds all things by the power of his word, the alpha and the omega, just to name a few things. It is he who bore the penalty. Yours and mine, the judgment has come to your door and it laid on Christ's shoulders. It would take the death of the son of man to satisfy even one believer's cosmic treason. And praise the Lord, it was enough to satisfy all believers. Cosmic treason. Praise the Lord. I'm free. You're free. So believer, as you evaluate your emancipation from the wrath of almighty God, Peter has a question for you. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And... If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless? Peter now turns the believer's inward gaze about our emancipation to an outward gaze of to empathize your enemy. I I made a mistake in your bulletins if you're keeping notes. Um, It says to uh, evaluate your enemies. If you would overwrite that, if you're taking notes with empathize, your enemy. I appreciate the correction. Peter asks the persecuted believer to to contemplate their enemies, to consider what these individuals who are persecuting them have in their future if they continue their course of disobedience to the gospel. What Christ endured on the cross for you and I will be an eternal punishment on their souls, not because they are persecuting the church, but because they have have share in the same cosmic offenses that we had before we were redeemed. The believer must attest to the fact that they were not saved by their own merit. They were not saved because they were so lovely. They were not worthy of being saved. They were enemies of God, born that way through Adam's curse and their very own choice to sin. Romans 5, 8 through 9 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. These children of disobedience, the ones who are persecuting the Christians, guess what? They need a savior. And Peter reminds them of that. And the believers to share in the suffering of Christ in this way. Sharing in the suffering of Christ requires us to be like-minded with Christ, and, or our labor is in vain. Peter goes on to say there in verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Since we have the honor of calling ourselves Christians, we are blessed to partner with Christ in his continued ministry to undo the works of the devil, Not to bring judgment, but to seek and save the lost in the name of Christ. This is God's will, believer. As you recount your redemption, when the faith that was placed in you took hold, you must rectify your response. I'd like you to turn to one last passage to close this. Um, Romans 12, Romans 12, verse 14 through 21. I couldn't close this out any more concise than Paul. Paul. Romans twelve fourteen through 21. In verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, for so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. With good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your words this morning call us to a higher standard than our flesh would ever or even whimsically suggest we should do. I think about those dear brothers and sisters who entrusted their souls to a faithful one, you. They acknowledge you as the creator, not just of the universe and souls, but the creator of new life. Through your son and his sacrifice, we've been elevated to sonship in your family. You've equipped us with every spiritual gift necessary to accomplish your will to seek and save the lost. We recognize your spirit in us and ask that you move through us to reach this lost world. Give your children a heart for the lost. Help us recognize that they are acting in a way that they have no control over, but you have, you have given them the power to release through faith. They pursue the lusts of the flesh as a consequence of their very thing that they that we once knew, but now we know grace. Please give us wisdom to sanctify our sights, recognizing who you are in us and that we are in you. Your favored little children, help us to drive deep in ministry to saints through submission to one another on account of our submission to you. When we begin to waver and rely on our own critical thinking, please steady our submission. Teach us through your word to understand our undertaking as sharers in the suffering of your son and give us a passion to excel still more and outdo each other in love as we uphold our unction. May we forsake our frustrations and as we deny ourselves, may you freshen our freedom. Remind us of goodwill to us and that you are our refuge and strength and a very help, very, very present help in times of need. May we fear you, Father, not for condemnation, but for a longing desire to glorify you. May we fix our focus on glorifying you and fulfill your perfect design for us in our lives. May we never fail to evaluate our emancipation from our former lusts and empathize our enemies. Your desire is that none should perish, but for all to come to repentance. May we operate in such a way that we evangelize our enemies and witness your word, not returning void. Finally, I pray, Lord, that your children recount their redemption, what they were saved from and saved to, and that is good works. May we rectify our response and do what is right to achieve your most perfect will of undoing the works of the devil and saving that which was lost. We pray these things in your son's name.